You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to do the call. Hello, and welcome to the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Sarah Kluster. Today, we're talking about one of the funniest shows on television, your iPad, your phone, or wherever you happen to stream your TV these days. Because let's be honest, you don't have cable anymore. Dairy Girls is currently has two seasons available to view on Netflix. This show follows five lower middle class Catholic Irish friends in the city of Derry in the early 1990s. These friends attend an all Catholic girls school and experience regular teen events such as crushes, school trips, and school dances set on the background of ongoing ethnic and religious violence. The show created by Lisa McGee, who also grew up in Derry during the same time, manages to be incredibly funny despite what may seem like very traumatic events happening around them all the time. A warning to our listeners, this show is incredibly raunchy in its use of the F-bomb and other curse words. This is definitely not something to watch with little ears in the room. Joining me today are Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and Sarah Thomas. Please introduce yourself, ladies. Sarah, why don't you go first? Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Sarah Thomas. I have a PhD in English literature from Florida State University. Currently, I am teaching high school English in the metropolitan Atlanta area where I live with my husband and our dog. Thanks, Sarah. And Victoria, why don't you update us on what you're doing these days? Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Uh, like Sarah Thomas, I also have a PhD in literature from Florida State University. Uh, I wrote both my master's thesis and my doctoral dissertation on teen culture in various forms, so I'm really excited to talk about this show. Uh, I currently live in the metro Atlanta area about five minutes from Sarah Thomas, and uh, I live with my husband and our cat, who hopefully will not make a lot of noise during this episode. And I am Sarah Kluster. I live in the uh, Great Plains of West Texas in Abilene, and I'm a former librarian and current uh, child, welfare, child welfare worker. And I'm excited to talk today about this show. I have no expertise in it at all, but I thought it was incredibly funny. And I'm excited to talk with these very smart ladies about this incredibly funny show. Ladies, how did y'all discover this series? Uh, what were your first impressions? Victoria? Um, I think I just saw the Netflix trailer and said, this looks really funny and feels appropriately teenage to me. I think I said uh, I want to watch this because I relate to it even though um, I'm quite a few years younger than Lisa McGee the creator and I am uh, not Irish nor at the time was I Catholic though I am now um, 
and watching the show the second time, um, there are some religious things that hit me post-confirmation a little differently than they did the first time I watched the show. So maybe we'll talk about that. Um, but yeah, I, I'm a big fan and uh, excited to, to talk more. All right, Sarah, what would you, uh, what were your impressions of the show? How did you discover it? I actually discovered the show on the, uh, by the recommendation of a colleague who was, uh, who during a uh, shared planning period back in the spring said to me, hey, Sarah, um, I know you're Catholic. I know you grew up in the 90s. I think you should watch this show because it's pretty hysterical. And I tend to trust this colleague's opinion on pop culture and on TV programs. And so I decided to check it out for myself. And there were, uh, like Victoria mentioned, there are some uh, religious components to the show that I find really fascinating in in some respects I find them very compelling because they resonate to an extent with my own experiences growing up as a Catholic teenager at a Catholic school in the 1990s although I was in the United States not in Ireland um, and there are other aspects of the show that I think are I think Victoria uh, mentioned this also uh, authentically adolescent in a way that I can really appreciate it manages it manages to be hysterically funny with some of the physical comedy, but without devolving into parody in a way that I really enjoy. So I'm excited to talk about the show also today. Excellent. Well, I found the show, I rem and I initially remember watching about half of the first episode and being like, Ooh, I don't know if this show is for me, and I I didn't watch, and so I didn't watch anymore. And then my husband watched it, loved it, and then eventually kind of cajoled me into watching the rest of it. I'm like, no, 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 yeah, you're right, you're right. This is really, really good. And so my initial first impression might be what several listeners might think, which is, man, they they curse a lot, and uh, I don't know, and I and I was just kind of presuming I wasn't going to get a lot of the humor because it was about people with a very different experience than I would I had in a different time period and all this but then the more I watched it the more I realized they still had very relatable teen girl experiences even though I was in a very different place um, where I grew up and so I know we'll talk a little bit about that more but before we get too far into this I guess we should talk about who are these dairy girls the dairy girls that we have are friends are our main character, Erin, her, her cousin, Orla, and then their friends, Michelle, Claire, and then Michelle's cousin, James, who, as they will not let you forget, is in fact English. But now that he has moved back to Ireland, has to go to the all-Catholic girls' school because his life would be in danger if he went to the boys' school. And James being the only male in an all-girls' school is normally cause for many, many jokes at his expense these girls are also accompanied by many adults the best adult in the series by far is the amazing sister michael who i know we will talk oh man she is about. absolutely the best sister sister michael is the best and is the one time when i'm like man maybe i kind of wish i was catholic because because man she's just like super cool there's no there's no equivalency of her anywhere else um and then we have we have Aaron's parents, her her grandfather, 
and some of the girls' other parents, but we may we mainly follow Erin and her family as well. So in our very first episode, we were introduced to Erin and her incredibly tight-knit, some might say enmeshed, uh, Catholic family who uh, is living in Derry or Londonderry, depending on your persuasion and ethnicity. And the first thing that we hear is that it is the first day of school and they're watching TV and a bomb has gone off. And there's this moment of sheer horror as the adults look at the screen. And then Aaron's mother, Mom Mary, says in a horrified voice, does this mean she can't go to school? Oh, my God, I have to. She has to go to school. I'm so sick of her. Please let her be able to go to school. Um, And the rest of and most of the horrible things that happen around them tend to be like that, that it is there's a bombing or somebody has has kidnapped somebody, but it it's not played as this incredibly high traumatic thing. It is all very much filtered through the lens of their everyday life. In this first episode, we're introduced to the girls' school where everyone attends, including the new James. And the girls uh, try to do various things such as get dates, sneak out of detention, and it ends up with a very, very elderly nun who is apparently 98 dying and everyone trying to figure out what could have killed the poor thing. And I think it's an excellent introduction for this series because you, you get a little bit of everything. You get the introduction to the girls' lives. You get to see their parents. You really get to fill their personalities that they're all trying to be new and different this year. You have the character of Michelle, who is trying to be this very cool American teen. And so she's cursing more and they're trying to, they're trying to be different in the same way by all wearing jackets, but then their mothers tell them no. And then they just completely give in. And you can also tell that these are kiddos who are from definitely not, not, not poverty, not low class, but definitely a lower middle class. And that they definitely, and unlike some of their peers at, at uh, school, they definitely have money problems. They have to actually be concerned about things. And yeah, I think you you just have a lot of great humor with the introduction of James, who, because he's the only boy who's ever attended Our Lady Immaculate College, there's no men's restroom for him to use. So he just has to hold it all day and is not allowed to use any of the restrooms anywhere until he eventually has to pee in a corner because he can't hold it anymore. Um, and if that sounds slightly ridiculous, that's kind of how most there's, there is an element of, I know there's an actual literary term for this, but I haven't taken an English class in like 13 years because I think, I I think you might be looking for farce. It's a farce. Yeah, that's what I'm, there's an element of farce in it that is, it's, yeah, I watch it and I'm like, this is horrible, but like, it's almost really close to being believable but it's not quite i don't know it's always it's, right on the edge what it's, you it's basically a three stooges cartoon i mean with with real human people in it but the the comedy is is turned up to 11 um and is it is very uh physical in a way that definitely has um the kind of irish british farce um vibe to it it's it's not far off from something like uh like a a faulty towers or a vicar of dibley in terms of like these are people that you know but they're funnier than the people that you know no 
well, I could kind of see that. Yeah, that they're that they're that they're a slightly turned up version to eleven of people you already know in real life. I could see that. That's a good way of putting it. Do you want us to talk about other episodes? No. no go, um, we can go ahead and talk about uh, some of the other episodes. Uh, like I said, I just wanted to give a, a quick uh, overview of episode one. So why don't you tell us about the the, the chip shop episode, Victoria? Because I know we were talking beforehand that we both found that one immensely hysterical. Uh, yeah. So. Um, as Sarah said, Aaron's family is lower middle class, and one of the things that seems to be the center of her mother's week is that um, every Friday night, so that she won't have to cook, they order from the neighborhood Chippy, uh, run by this woman named Fanola, who is um, a loud, brash, single Irish woman. Um, she's a kind of community stereotype and the center of the episode is that our girls want to go to Paris on a school trip but they don't have money so they have to get jobs Uh, they decide or Michelle decides uh, Michelle when drunk and and she usually is drunk um, decides that the best way to prevent other people from getting jobs is to steal the whole entire job notice board not just take the pieces of paper off of it and take them but she takes the whole darn uh, notice board down as you do when you're uh, drunk at 16 and not that I would know anything about that and steals the notice board have to make up for stealing the notice board because in dairy everybody knows your parents and knows your business and they get found out real quick they have to clean the chippy um, but because again this is basically a three stooges cartoon them cleaning the chippy winds up with them uh, setting Fanula's upstairs apartment on fire uh, because Michelle was trying to drink flaming shots of alcohol and drops them on the floor Uh, So this all tells us how tight-knit their community is. It's very funny. Um, Lots of hijinks. Uh, Yeah, that's pretty much episode two. uh, Wasn't that after they realized after an hour and a half that they had been cleaning the chippy with mayonnaise instead of glass cleaner or something? No, Um, yeah. Yeah, Not just just mayonnaise. Mayonnaise or cooking oil or something like that. It's both. They like okay, basically yeah. smear flammable <laughs> fat all over everywhere. Um, so I'm, I'm surprised that the fire doesn't just uh, take out both floors. Um, and I think I think that shows one thing about the girls that one that these are not girls that, despite being a lower middle class, like they are not super like they're not doing cleaning and doing a lot of crap at home themselves. Um, and one of my favorite parts of that episode is kind of a, 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 a kind of a, a slow gag that they have at the beginning where the father is trying to order they're ordering food and he's like oh we only need two bags of chips which by the way everyone if you haven't watched any british television before that means how many fries do we need right and so he's like okay we need two and as people keep coming in they keep like no no we need at least three no no we need four and the, by the time they're actually ordering they're ordering like six Se- or seven, seven bags of fries right like almost as much as like actual food that they're getting. I mean, the chips are the best part of going to a chip shop, to be fair. Like that's what people are there for, right? That's why they put them in the sandwiches too when uh when they're all ordering uh buddies, curry buddies. A curry buddy is uh, a sandwich with uh chips, fries, and curry sauce in between bread. So it's like 
carbs on top of carbs and a little bit of spicy stuff and also delicious. Um, yeah, I, I find that I find that episode particularly funny because again, I think that's one of the ones where like they have like they have the brother, they have like or they have the grandfather's brother, uh, Colm, I believe his name is, right? Who's incredibly boring and nobody wants to talk to him because he's so dull, right? And he is he is people who come in, like tie him up in his own home steal his van to use to presumably drive across the border and like blow up. And that's like, and that's kind of a dull thing. They're like, Oh, you poor thing. And then instantly, Oh yeah, we're, we're kind of, you're very boring. We're, we're, we're done talking about this now. Right. Cause he takes so long to tell the story. Yeah. Yes. And like tells it in like the least interesting way possible to tell a story about how you were like, assaulted and like tied up in your own home so um well that is our that's kind of one of our second episodes uh sarah why don't you tell us about episode three of season one all right so season three or, or sorry season one episode three follows the girls um as they start out preparing to study for uh, their upcoming exams that they have to take. And in their efforts to cram, they drink way too much, they consume way too much caffeine and stay up all night. In the meantime, um, Erin is also distraught over the um, death of her dog. And after an all-nighter and... Um, absolutely no sleep and entirely too much caffeine on their way to school Erin believes that she has seen her dog that has just died follows the dog into a church and while they're all standing um inside the sanctuary um one of the girls believes that she sees a statue of the virgin mary wink at her and uh, later they believe they see the statue starting to weep. What has actually happened is that the dog has escaped into the upper choir loft of the church and the dog has started peeing and the urine has started dripping down the statue's face. Um, in, the, um, in the midst of trying to sort out the, uh, the purported miracle that has taken place, um, a young, attractive uh, priest is brought in to talk to the girls and to James about what they have witnessed and to try to uh, figure out what exactly is going on. And by the end of the episode, um, they, uh, Aaron admits that the um, admits that the miracle was not a miracle, and. Um, I think uh, Aaron's mother in turn admits that the dog has not died. Um, the dog was actually adopted out to a neighbor. Um, so there's this really touching scene and may, or I don't know if touching is the right word. Maybe it's not touching, but there is a, uh, a scene at the end of the episode when Aaron faces off with her mother about the lie her uh, mother told her about the dog. Um, and, in the midst of uh, trying to figure out what, if any, appropriate disciplinary measures need to be taken for the kerfuffle about the miracle that was not um, 
And so, yeah, there are a lot of of funny things going on in that episode. um, And there are some of those that I hope we get a chance uh, to talk about there. Um, That episode in particular touches on some of the more... um, some of the more explicitly Catholic uh, components of the show in a way that some of these other episodes that I think we're going to talk about today might not. Um, So we can talk about as much or as little of that as uh, you all would like to, but I'm particularly interested in that one. Yeah, I, again, I was laughing hysterically when that happened, but I was also thinking like, oh God, am I a horrible person for laughing at this this much? Um, because as a, as somebody who, you know, has only attended maybe two Catholic service services in my life there, you know, there's a lot of that stuff where I'm like, I'm sure that I'm missing some of this, but you know, there's just things like, Oh, when you're Baptist, those are just never things that end up coming up because that's just not a thing that we do. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think there's like, Oh, the statue. Okay. Like it just, it's like, and it's just not a thing that even occurs to me. I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. This, this is a thing that is important to other, to other parts of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Victoria, were you going to say something? I just, I think that the, the comedy of this show, both in terms of the religious content and in terms of the socio-political backdrop of the troubles in Northern Ireland, uh, the comedy exists in these incongruences when they pop up. Like, uh, a couple of times in series one, you get jokes about other places. Um, In the first episode, when Claire is fasting for African children, um, and they're talking about, like, can you imagine growing up someplace like that and how awful it would be? Uh, they say, at least Derry has class. And then there's a smash cut to their bus being stopped on a bridge in front of armed guards um, to check and see if there are any, uh, any IRA contraband on their bus. So that kind of incongruence. And I think it happens the same all throughout episode three, this idea that these are kids and their religion is important to them. Um, They, for example, make fun of Claire for praying the Hail Mary to that very same statue before a test. Um, But they're fully ready to accept the weeping statue miracle because it gets them out of the exam. So, you know, they're still just kids, even though there's all this serious religious um, and political stuff going on. And I think that's why the show is hilarious, because it points out those gaps between everyday experiences and big, um, earth-shattering things that might not seem big when you're living through them, because you're still just a person. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Victoria. I really like the way uh, you articulated that. And, and as you were explaining that, I, I was thinking about my own experiences in high school. And while I never experienced anything quite like that, I, the, the part that you mentioned specifically about, about living amidst a backdrop, but still being children and, and acknowledging or, you know, young, you know, young adults and still trying to figure out, um, what faith looks like when it's, when it's, and part of the fabric of your day-to-day lives and your schooling and that sort of smash up of, yeah, uh, struggling with responsibility and meeting, you know, meeting obligations, but also being willing to accept things on faith and to want to, you know, to want to, um, 
to want to believe, I think is, yeah, is something that really resonated with me. So thank you for articulating that much better than I could have. (laughs) And then the other one that, other thing that comes on in this episode is we have the character of the handsome young priest. And though that's not, though I do not have direct experience with that, I, I, I can kind of relate to like, you know, being 13, like the really, really like good looking, hot, like 20 year old youth intern for the summer coming to your church and just being like gaga in love with that guy because he kind of had to be nice to you. And so he would visit and you're just like, oh my God, he's so handsome. Um, and so you kind of have that experience that the girls have with this priest. And I guess the one thing that would be different is if you're a 13 or 14 year old girl at your Baptist church, um, kind of ooing and aahing over the 20 year old youth intern, there's at least a thought in your head of like, oh, he's going to grow, he's going to be a preacher and he's going to get married or cause you know, of course he's going to have to get married. He's a Baptist preacher. And so like, there's a thought of like, well, something could happen, even though nothing could, like you can think that in your head. Whereas I guess if, I guess it's a very different thought process. If you're a Catholic teen and you have a cute priest. And, and now Sarah is going to share my favorite Catholic slang term. <laughs> yes, I will, Victoria. And you're absolutely right, Sarah. The, the dynamics of that are, are absolutely different um, when you're a Catholic teen and, and having to go through a retreat weekend with an absurdly attractive, freshly, you know, newly ordained priest. Uh, the term that we use to refer to, to those, uh, or that I have heard used to refer to those men is, Father, what a waste. Oh, that's amazing. Right? It's my favorite thing. That That is really nice. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know if there's any sort of like reverse thing if someone's like, oh, that's a very attractive young nun. Um, I don't know. But no, I, I, I really appreciate that term because that I think that's very much... Uh, I think the priest himself probably thought that um, in this yeah. partic- for this particular character. Yeah, can we can we talk for a minute about Peter and how? Because it's not just that he's hot, right? It's that he fancies himself hip and with it and like on the level of the kids. But also, um, he's having a quite serious crisis of faith that that comes through um, with these shenanigans with the weeping statue and and is it really weeping? Yeah, I thought that was very interesting because it's not that he's just there, but he desperately wants it to be true as confirmation of his faith for himself, right? He like it's not just he needs this he needs this external sign, right? Yeah, he he says several times, um, you know, that the real importance of this is that it proves uh, that God exists and does He exist and he repeats that phrase several times and sort of the uncomfortable comedy sneaks in and you realize that he's not just posing a rhetorical question to the teenagers. He's actually asking, you know, is this real? Have I entered into a situation where I'm essentially building my life's work on a lie or, or is it real? So even though, um, all of this is kind of, uh, elevated and and funny and silly there's a a humanity at the core of it I think in terms of a question of like what faith does to people and how it uh how it stabilizes their lives which is why I think in the episode where you have this outlandish weeping statue um 
quietly the kind of most purest Catholic thing in the episode is Aaron's mother's deception because she uh, gives their dog away to a woman who is alone and, and lives by herself and needs companionship because she feels like that woman has been wronged by her family and she wants to make up for it in its way that is a very catholic uh thing because it it recognizes human need for attachment am i off base about that no i don't think so i actually i have i have the episode muted in the background right now and i'm watching the scene and um uh, the scene where he's uh, where they're in the office, uh, uh, Sister Michael's office, talking to uh, talking to Peter, who has taken off his clerical collar um, in an effort to appear more relatable. Yeah, um, he's not a regular so, priest. He's a cool priest. Yes. That's exactly. I know. <laughs> so he always seems to kind of like epitomize that meme. That's like, how do you do fellow youth? Right? Like that's very much like the vibe he's going for. Yeah. He does try real hard, but also he's adorable. Yeah, he is kind of, yeah, he is adorable. And the, I, I will say that, that none of the, none of the young attractive priests that I encountered um, in my own adolescence went nearly as far as peter does in this episode um as far as uh as far as yeah delving you know falling too far down the try hard hole um in an effort to be relatable there was sort of always a level on which we recognized that or i think even he recognized you know uh recognized his position relative to ours um but yeah i was thinking about um the idea of um oh what is it bishop robert Barron refers to love as um willing the good of the other as other and and that phrase came back to me just now as i was thinking victoria about your comment about um aaron's mother uh recognizing you know recognizing the good in another because the the woman she gives the dog to is the one who has some beef with her father right and they've been or her father doesn't yeah they're fighting her over the bingo doesn't... which is another yeah. like catholic bingo is very serious as i have learned um in in our actually in our, our parish it's bridge but uh that rang really true to me because i have been recruited to several people's uh bridge teams the comments of like oh you're confirmed now so we can invite you do you want to be our fourth for bridge like okay <laughs> this is a big yes, deal um and fish fry and bingo nights during lent like this is a thing um you know that that um that parish men's clubs will will host um so yeah and yes it does get pretty cutthroat uh, but yeah this idea that she recognizes the good and the, the you know the good in another person and recognizes that that need and realizes that that she needs the dog more than their family does um i think she also it, kind of feels guilty though because granddad joe who we should talk about eventually because he's real funny and great um he hates this woman because he says that she cheats at bingo that she has like a magic pen that uh that she knows the numbers somehow or it rearranges the numbers i don't know he has some superstition about the pen and uh and so i think mary feels a bit guilty about you know her father having impugned this woman's character for 
decades or however long he has hated her as the way people do in small towns. Uh, yeah, so I, I think it's it's just a, a very human kind of quiet uh, action to, to give her the dog. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I know uh, Ma Mary is my second favorite adult character after Sister Michael, and one of the things that I find incredibly funny about her is that she has an enormous amount of influence on her family, on her daughter. And she has, by the way, she has that baby. Do we ever know what the baby's name is? Or is, or is that baby just always there? No right? clue. Are we ever told like the baby's name or if it's a girl or is the baby just there? I think the baby's just there. Like they mention okay. the, uh, Jerry, her poor long suffering, Aaron's poor long suffering father, um, trapped in that house with a father-in-law who, uh, informs him that he wishes he were dead and never married his daughter a thousand times. Um, he's the only one who openly ever refers to the baby. He says, you know, that ship has sailed because we have two children. Um, and people carry the baby around sometimes, but it, he or she does not have a name. I think it just, you know, it's probably an Irish Catholicism joke, though I think they would probably have more than two kids. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. According to the interwebs which you know like according to the dairy girls wiki her name is anna may quinn but i don't right. remember her being sure. referred to as anna in any no, of the, I don't, in any of the episodes um no, i did I remember them saying, as like is this a boy is this a girl it was just always it was just always yeah. kind of a baby that was attached to her yes um and I did always think it was really fascinating that there's such a big age gap because yes, in that episode that, that you're talking about um, or that moment that you're talking about Victoria, he mentions um, that they've been married for 17 years and Aaron is 16 years old. Um, but then there's a 15 year age gap. So yeah, that's, that's always something that I thought was really fascinating. Um yeah, so does it, what does it suggest about maybe why they, uh, why they got married, or was Aaron a honeymoon baby, or was, I've already forgotten the poor child's name, Anna? Anna, yeah. Uh, was she an oopsie, perhaps? I don't know. Right, but yeah, but I, yeah, but I thought that was really fascinating also, that, that big, that big age gap, but there only being two of them. Well, and none of the other characters seem to come from large families like we would expect from a traditional, like, at least how I have always seen um, Irish Catholics represented, represented based mainly through shows about Boston as these like, oh, we got, we got like 17 kids or something, right? Which is how they're generally presented. So it actually seems very odd that all of the other characters, you have Aaron with one very younger sibling, but there's no indication that either Michelle or Claire or Orla or any of these other characters have other siblings, even though we would presume that they should. I mean, but they don't seem, maybe now is, is the time to talk more about religion, but they don't seem terribly devout. I mean, they, they go to Catholic school and they use Catholic terminology, and I think there's a degree to which their religion is important to them, but um, it, it seems as cultural as anything else. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, so let's talk about our next two episodes. Uh, our next episode is the first episode of the 
I I would always say season two, but they would say series two, which is the hands across the barricade in which the girls participate in a cross-cultural, cross-ethnic kind of weekend retreat. Uh, and so they, the some of the girls of Our Lady Immaculate College are meeting to basically do like trust falls and a weekend retreat with some boys from a Protestant all boys school in Derry. And so the girls, or at least Michelle, get very, very excited because they're going to party, they're going to make out. Michelle's going to have sex with one of them. The character of James, Michelle's cousin, is excited because he's going to know a guy friend and he's not going to have to like hang out with girls all the time. And then Claire, Orla, and Aaron are a little more neutral on it. Aaron very clearly wants to wants to have a boyfriend and make out. Orla is, you know, she's kind of there. She's Orla and Claire. Orla is, is a space I, alien. Like, yeah. she's, she's what uh, TV Tropes refers to as a cloud cuckoo lander. She comes from a different planet than all the other characters, and her uh, responses to situations are not human responses to situations ever. Yeah, and which is reflected by, that's basically how her mother, Aaron's aunt, is. The uh, and I think I think Claire is the one going into the initially going in with the most like sincere like I want to work at this, but it very quickly devolves into the fact that neither these Protestant or Catholic, these Protestant boys or Catholic teen girls can find anything in common with each other. When um, Father Peter was his name, yes, he he is a, he is the kind of. He is the kind of the guru leading this where he's like, well, what, what do we have in common? And then Aaron will raise her hand and say, well, Protestants are much richer. And like, well, no, that's actually a difference. And so they have this very comical list of they have, you know, 80 thing, 80 differences written on the board and not a single thing in common. And eventually he's, you know, they give up. They go to do trust falls. The character of Claire, who um, has come out in an earlier episode as being a lesbian, is very, very, very nervous um, about this, and so she they're they're kind of doing a repelling thing where the 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 pro- her Protestant partner has to kind of let the lead out, and she starts screaming that he he was going to kill her because he hates all Catholics, and it's like no 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 I said I said athletes, and so you you just get a lot of this like this like no there's just there's a lot of miscommunication um, that's obviously supposed to reflect the miscommunication between the two political and ethnic sides that everybody is just reading the absolute worst intentions into the other people. And then it ends with after this, them kind of going back and all of their parents, the, our Catholic girls and our Protestant boys, their parents coming up and basically getting like their, their butts chewed by their parents. And so it kind of, it ends the episode with Aaron walking up to the board that says, you know, things in common. And she just writes one thing on it and it says parents. And you see, I think one or two of the Catholic boys or Protestant boys look at her and like, okay, yeah, yeah, I guess we do have that in common. And this is another, to me, excellent episode where uh, sister Michael really shines because she's just so over all of it. And, yeah, uh, she doesn't care. She's not hopeful, but she's also not like she's not really anti-Protestant, but she's not really hopeful. She's got some really great one-liners. There is a there is a a supporting character named Jenny who comes from a much wealthier family, and she's very much a goody two shoes, 
uh, student council president kind of type. And so she she rats them out and snitches on them for having a party. And so Jenny is looking to Sister Michael for this kind of approval for the fact that she's snitched and gotten all these her uh, her friends in trouble. And uh, Sister Michael looks at her and says, Jenny, you will go far in life, but you will not be well-liked. Which is just such gold. Um, but again, I think... Uh, if if the weeping statue episode really kind of demonstrates some of the larger like more Catholic themes, I think this one, along with maybe the Bill Clinton episode, uh, show a lot of the the political concerns that are going on. That this is it's an odd mix because it's it's not purely it's not purely Catholic it's not purely religious and it's also not purely ethnic because we have the character of because if we're purely you know, if this were, if it were a purely ethnic thing or purely religious, then like they wouldn't really make fun of James at all, right? Because James, the character of James is actually Catholic. Well, what's, but, what's hilarious about, English. what's hilarious about James in this episode um, is the way his desire to make friends um, during the episode turns him super British in addition to turning him hyper-masculine. He, like, puts on this show of being very, uh, being very British and not being Irish because he wants to fit in with uh, the other boys at the other school, which is just a, a superhuman, uh, not superhuman, a very human uh, reaction. Yeah, he, he's, he keeps going on about all these women he's dating and, like, all the, all the other guys are looking at him like, giving him this look of like dude you are trying way too hard in the same way that that you might look at a, a woman who's who is trying much too hard to impress a date or something right well like, as as our girls do throughout the whole date where she's like oh i just i love football and oh yes tell me more about the alabama crimson tide oh yes they're my favorite like that kind of thing like he's very much doing that with the other boys to the to the point that it's so exaggerated that um when they're fighting at the end the other one of the boys from the other school says and this guy is just weirdly sexist so it's it's 90s enough that you know like they have uh they have an understanding of uh of sexism and he he crosses that line with this this fake uh machismo which i think also serves as as almost a almost a sympathetic gesture because for the previous for the whole first series he's his maleness is repeatedly impugned by the other girls and yeah you're not on the you're one, not really a boy yeah like you're not really a boy and on the one hand this group of of teenage girls has welcomed him into you know, has welcomed him into their friend group and has sort of set out to look out for him rather than totally setting him adrift um, in this all-girls school. Um, But they're also, yes, regularly saying, oh, you don't really count. You're not really a boy. And so this is a chance for him to find some sort of, yeah, some sort of male companionship. And it backfires so spectacularly that I... I I feel bad for him almost <laughs> as much as I'm cringing at his you know 
at at the awkwardness of his efforts. Um, yeah, I feel bad for him too, and I I think um, it it stands mentioning that James as a character is the closest thing we have to an audience surrogate, at least for Americans watching this show, because he sort of doesn't understand Irishness. They have to explain slang words to him. Um, so he, he does kind of function, um, as, uh, a, a way to, you know, make this show a little bit more Netflix friendly for American audiences, gives them a way in to explain some things that they wouldn't have to explain to, um, Irish or especially Northern Irish audiences. And Victoria, can you tell us a little bit about the last episode we wanted to kind of summarize the, the 50s prom episode? Sure. Um, I wanted to summarize this one because, as I said, a, a scholar of teen culture, um, this episode knows what it's doing. It hits a lot of really familiar um, teen movie beats. Um, the sort of the prom is the culmination of everything. Um, you have to have the right dress. You have to have the right date. Uh, all those things are here. Um, it's about clicks and make sure you hang out with the right people. Um, a couple of things that happen during the episode. There's this new girl, May, who uh, is from Donegal, um, but is Chinese. There are some funny ethnic jokes there. Um, they want to hang out with her because she is foreign and different, and she wants to be in their gang because she thinks that Claire being a lesbian gives her uh, cachet, so everyone is, is just as shallow as everyone else. Uh, uh, funny joke there. Aaron is in love with this guy, John Paul, uh, who has just broken up with another girl, so she's going after him. Uh, Aaron and Claire are jealous of, um, are Claire, rather, is jealous of Aaron's friendship with May, uh, so she doesn't want to be overshadowed. Uh, Aaron, in another kind of classic prom episode twist, gets stood up by John Paul, um, and is very sad. There's a scene of her sort of staring at the clock in her dress, and James shows up to swells of music uh, and rescues her and takes her to the dance. Um, Michelle, in sort of classic Brady Bunch style, brings two dates to the dance. Um, they end up becoming friends with each other. What did I miss? Um, oh, Orla, who again is from outer space, takes her grandfather Joe to prom, and they are a hit because he knows all the 1950s dances. Uh, last thing, um, May, who it turns out is kind of a crazy person, um, tries to pull a carry on uh, annoying goody two-shoes Jenny and cover her in what is not in fact pig's blood, but is uh, instead tomato juice, because I guess she couldn't get blood, uh, or is not actually that evil. Uh, and our girls, in trying to be helpful and nice in spite of themselves, push Jenny out of the way, but they don't push her all the way out of the way, and everyone ends up covered uh, in tomato juice at the end of the episode. Um, as the prom is happening, the cease, a ceasefire is declared um, as well, the, the famous uh, ceasefire that happened that year. So one of the things that I find really funny about this episode is that, again, one of the things that I find compelling about the whole series is that that ceasefire is an incredibly important political thing that has happened in their lifetime, 
But that is not, none of those girls are going to remember that because that's the night prom happened, right? And so I think for so many teens, I mean, I remember this about important things that I know happened in my youth. I'm 9-11, various other things. These are important things, but they really are very much all in the backdrop of the normal life they're trying to live. And so that maybe they're important for the adults, but they are just, you know, the thing they care about is that prom date. And, you know, trying to find a date for prom, I can be particularly brutal. I remember I actually asked, I asked somebody out to prom and he was like, oh, well, I don't know if I'm going. And I was like, oh, well, okay. And he was in one of my classes. We got along really well. He didn't talk to me for the next three weeks until, even though he sat next to me until after prom, I saw him at prom. I went up to be like, so I guess you decided to go. And he was like, yeah, I did. And then he was just like, and he just talked to me fine after that because I guess he didn't have to worry about being my prom date anymore. But, Ooh, you know, there's cold. just so much. Like, oh, yeah. Um, and I, so I, there's just so much stuff that I feel like everybody has some sort of like, it, you know, that's not traumatic. It's not a huge deal. I'm fine now. I'm not at all bitter anymore, even though I probably actually sound like that way telling the story. But it, I think that there are just these things that like everybody has some sort of like, going to the dance or being stood up like we, we did that's just a very common thing that people can relate to especially as americans right yeah and i think Ed, it's probably important to say that american pop culture is important here too um i i mentioned michelle and her two dates what i did not mention is uh one of the funniest sight gags of this episode is that michelle is dressed uh just like elizabeth hurley at the oscars um, when when she was uh, with Hugh Grant and she shows up in that dress with the, the safety pins, um, Michelle is, is wearing a dress that apes that, and also uh, her hair is, is done like Elizabeth Hurley's hair. So they're, they're cognizant of those American pop cultural trends. I hadn't noticed that, Victoria, um, but as you're mentioning the fascination with American culture, I'm glad you mentioned that Michelle is so interested in it, because the only one of the five who knew what Carrie was is James. He's the one who says, oh my God, she's going to carry her. And I think it was Michelle who said, what are you talking about, James? And um, am I remembering that correctly? But James is the one who brings up yeah, Carrie. He's the only one who knows because he's like trying to explain the plot. And then he says, basically, all you need, all you need to know is pig's blood. Like she's going to get blood dumped on right, her. Right. Yeah, he's like, I mean, there's other stuff, but really, like, that's the salient point here. But for someone who is so, you know, for a character who has established herself as so invested in um, in American culture, she she sort of missed that whole, like, that's, she's not the one who brings that up, that, in fact, it's, it's James. Um, well, because I think I the the cultural blockades into Northern Ireland, she's going to have a hard time getting that stuff. She mentions mm -hmm. in the, oh, is yeah, it the first episode point. where she talks about, she swears so much because um, she saw this movie and there are these guys in really great suits and they eat cheeseburgers and swear a lot. She's talking about Pulp Fiction. Um, yeah. She says that her, uh, essentially her da stole um, the black market video. So, you know, it's it's tough to get mm -hmm. American culture there. Uh, so I think it would be easier for her to watch a black market copy of Pulp Fiction than it would for her to know about a movie from, what, tw 20 years before? 18 years before? Carrie is 1976, mm -hmm. I think. 
Ah, okay. Yeah, I hadn't considered it that way. Uh, but yeah, that's a good point also. Um, yeah. I just, I thought it was really, I was like, yay, James. I thought it was a really nice moment for him. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he's yeah, so James cute in that episode. A, James is definitely a resident. He, he, he's a nerdy guy. And in fact, in this episode, he tells the girls ahead of time he's not going to the dance because he's going to like, he's going to a, a who con, like a convention for doc or like a who night to watch like Doctor Who with other Whovians. And so you have this scene that like he, he kind of like comes in as like, so he has given up this thing he really wanted to do and was looking forward to and get to finally hang out with people who aren't going to make fun of him all the time. But he's like, he's coming in to like, you know, knight in shining armor kind of rescue Aaron from being stood up, which I was not stood up for prom, but having been stood up before it is, it is not fun. Though <laughs> and he, it is, and he, there, with, I don't know if you ladies have had this experience, but the, the one time I was stood up, there's there's that moment where you're like, oh no, it's like you convince yourself much longer than if you had a friend who had been stood up where you'd be like, oh honey, no. Like you convince yourself for a very long time that something has just gone wrong. And then you're just sitting there waiting, waiting, and then it slowly dawns on you what has actually happened. And then it's like, oh no. So I definitely not that it happened to me at prom, but in any time anytime being stood up is, is definitely a very brutal thing for anyone to have to go to through. Yeah, it's it's bad. It's you're pretty happy as a viewer when James finally shows up uh, in his Doctor Who scarf, um, ready to take her to the prom. So, ladies, my question to y'all, and maybe y'all know more of this than I do, for, for our viewers, do they actually need to know like a lot of Irish history? or very much about Catholicism to enjoy this show? I would argue no, because I don't know very much about either, and I still find it hilarious. But I would imagine there are little tiny details that if you did know, you could probably appreciate it even more. Would you all say that that's correct? Yeah, I think that's true. I don't think you need to know much about Irish history other than you probably need to know that the Troubles existed that they were colloquially called the Troubles, and uh, that the IRA were bad, violent people. And I think that's pretty much uh, the extent of the necessary knowledge, though there are kind of more specific jokes that hit funnier if you do know um, a little bit more. Like, I liked the series of jokes in the History Exam episode um, where they talked about the, the British colonization of, of Ireland um, and, and made lots of jokes at, at James's expense there. Um, there's some, some sort of deep cut jokes there. But no, you don't have to know any of that stuff. There are some deep cut jokes in that episode also about the Stuart dynasty, which is a long 18th century scholar. I, uh, I really appreciated too. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought that you would like those. I um, I, ch I chuckled at them too. And props to whatever writer uh, put that in. Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. Um, but I I agree with uh, with y'all's assessment. Um, I don't I don't know that that a viewer would need a um, would need a deep knowledge of Irish history. Um, and I think. Uh, and I'm not sure that you need a deep knowledge of Catholicism either. Um, I feel like some of the 
some of the funnier elements um, with regard to the Catholicism in this series um, are kind of like uh, kind of like the the jokes about Irish history are, are hit a little funnier or are or are a little more poignant if you happen to be familiar with Catholic theology or Catholic experiences um, or being a Catholic teenager in the 90s. But I think you can appreciate what I find uh perhaps most endearing about the show without um without knowing those things what do you what do you ladies think i agree with you about the catholicism i think um and i i don't feel super qualified to speak to this as i have been a catholic for a couple of months now uh maybe not even that much and but I, I did notice, despite the brevity of, of that time period, that there are things that hit me differently watching the second time around. Uh, for example, in an early episode, um, Sister Michael is, she says something super snarky. Oh, she's talking about how um, the world is cruel and uh, and James isn't going to get any sympathy from the people at the school and then uh, it's time for the assembly to be over, so she makes the sign of the cross and says, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. And that hit me differently because I realized it was like she was saying, you know, James, you're a moron and no one's going to be nice to you as like part of the prayer <laughs> and intoning it. Um, and I also could not stop myself from crossing myself every time the characters cross themselves because it's such a reflex now that when someone says Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I, that's what I do. So, uh, yeah, certain of those things were funny in a different way this time around. Well, I, I, I mean, I guess that's good on my part because to know because I, whenever I watch a show and I enjoy it, I always kind of want to know as much about it as possible. And so I think that there is an element of the show that this is going to be, a, this is going to be an odd like stretch, but bear with me, ladies. That reminds me a little bit about King of the Hill and that I can see that in that there's that if you, cause the thing I love about King of the Hill is that if you are a native Texan watching it, there are so many incredibly deep cuts about living in basically Northeast Texas around Dallas, but that it's funny to lots of people, but that, the, and they can kind of get it at that base level, but there's always this like slightly deeper Texan level to get all the episodes at. And so I'm, I'm just kind of presuming that there is something about, there is a level to that with about some of the Irish stuff and the Catholicism that I'm just, I'm never going to get because I just don't have that lived experience in the same way. Yeah, I was reading an article earlier today um, when preparing for this show from a woman who uh, was, she grew up in Northern Ireland and she was present at a real um, Hands Across the Barricades weekend and she was saying, uh, this episode is very hilarious to a very specific subset of people who lived in a particular time and place and she basically says, yeah, we were all, like, we were all trying to make it with all the, the uh, across the barricades buddies and that's very true and that was everybody's MO, but I think you would think it was funny if you have ever been a teenager, even if you didn't have that specific experience, but man, it resonates with the 
those of us who did have that specific experience of time and place. So I, I think that's true um, on, on both sides. Well, and obviously that wasn't an issue for me, but like I went on youth trips, I went on like weekend youth retreats and you're like, Oh, maybe, maybe this will be the weekend that so-and-so asked me to go out. Like you like, maybe I'll get a date out of this. It's just a huge part. I think for many people of being a teen. And so I can still like, I still kind of get that like, Ooh, we're going on a school trip this weekend. Maybe someone, it's it just always, I think there, at least it was in the back of my mind. Uh, well, maybe I can get a date out of this. Who's going on this? That kind of thing. Yeah. I, I do think a, a lot of those uh, teen experiences are, are familiar despite the difference in, um, context something else i like about the show is that and i think bbc tends to do this more obviously than american shows but none of the like none of the actresses are like made up to be like lookers or hot now the actresses themselves might be very attractive in real life but they are not made up to be that way as teens in fact they really kind of go out of the way to make, you know, that clothing very much has not even early nineties, but the, because they're, you know, as we've talked about, they're kind of culturally behind what we would consider like American pop culture, which would have been setting like world fashion standards at that point. Like they're all in like mid eighties fashion in about like 1994. Right. Whereas if this was a show done in America about something similar, like everybody would be, you know, it would be like the OC, right? Like everybody is like a 27 year old trying to play like a 27 year old supermodel trying to pretend to be 15, right? Yeah, I was going to say this is not, um, Channel 4 is, is not the CW. Like it doesn't, they, they feel like authentic teenagers visually. Um, yeah, I think you're right about that. Which I think goes a long way to kind of help establishing a feel of realism for the show in the way that I can I can feel much more sympathetic to them because I'm like oh they were they're awkward looking like I was like there's no like Misha Barton playing you know or from the OC like just like nope impossibly beautiful character that just that you're supposed to kind of watch and admire from afar right yeah I I would agree with that um, although I will say that some of um some of Aaron's fashion choices, particularly in the prom episode when she stalks off when they, when they go to the mall and, and Aaron stomps away, um, the, the ribbed, uh, not, not quite a crop top, but, you know, the top that was cut a little bit shorter, um, the, the sort mm-hmm. of crop top, and then the jeans with the fleece-lined denim jacket and her stacked heels. She, had a, she was wearing a pair of square-toed stack heel, I think, boots under her wide-leg jeans, and I wanted that outfit so bad when I was in high school. That's and- coming back, like... <laughs> Yes, it is. Like early '90s fashion is coming back, and it freaks me out because it's like I didn't think it looked good at the time, and now like crop tops and high waisted, like everybody's trying to dress like the Rachel character from the first season of Friends, and it's freaking me out, guys. It's, it's. I now remember. um, I feel a new level of empathy for my mother 
who I remember telling me when the Delia's catalog was rocking bell bottoms in, you know, 1996, she would say to me, man, I wore that the last time it came around. And that's what I think to myself now on a regular basis. So mom, this one's for you. I can, I can empathize with your frame of reference at this point. Yeah. My, uh, my niece is 15 and she, um, currently is coveting a pair of Doc Martens that are exactly like the kind I wore uh, in the mid-90s, so I, I feel you. It, it hurts when that stuff comes back around. Yeah, there is nothing new under the sun. Uh, although I do still have my Birkenstock clogs, and I am wearing them as we speak, because I figure if the teens can wear them now, then it is okay for me to bring them out of retirement again, so I, I am very excited about that. Ladies, do we feel that religion is presented as a positive in this, in these girls' lives? Is it just there? Is it a net positive? I mean, I would argue that it is because even if, because even if we, as we've talked about before, there's not, not, none of these families seem particularly devout. It is there providing structure to their daily lives, especially I would say for, you know, if we have the character of Michelle who is, very, very um, rebellious, but I, that's still restrained within a, within this Catholic framework that she's viewing the world, right? Like, who knows where she would be going or what she would be doing if she didn't have some of this um, kind of structural uh, restraint put on her by her by her background. What do y'all think? Is is religion portrayed as a pos- as a net positive? I think it is, though. I would, in terms of Michelle, I would say. Um, it's it's less Catholicism uh, holding her back than it would be her kind of adoption into Aaron's immediate family. Um, it's clear that Michelle's mother is um, a single working mother and that she is working really hard to keep track of her daughter but kind of doesn't really have the time. Um, but that the community, the, one thing that keeps kind of all of these girls in line is the fact that the community of adults is working like a community of adults should work and kind of keeping an eye out for them and, and um, you know, parenting all of these kids together. So I, I think that religion is probably a motivating factor in that happening, um, but I would say it's secondary and not primary there. I think I would agree that it it serves as a backdrop and a framework for their lives, but I'm not sure that it, um, I I think one of the questions that we had uh, earlier was about uh, the idea of of the Catholicism being cultural to a certain extent, and and I think I would agree with that. Um, with that assessment, one of the things that I've actually been thinking about as we've been talking, and um, the, we might need to stick a pin in this one and maybe uh, revisit it uh, in another episode or, or maybe uh, extend the discussion on the Facebook page or something. But as we've been talking, I, and I've been wondering if there's some degree to which this uh, series might be commenting on a particular aspect of cultural Catholicism in the 90s with the way that it brings up some of the um, 
some of the potentially problematic issues. Um, for example, the weeping statue, I was, I think we were talking before we started recording. Um, there was, there was actually um, an event in Georgia in the mid nineties. Um, I think it was uh, in Conyers, Georgia, which is east of Atlanta, where um, a woman uh, had, uh, was visited by apparitions of the Virgin Mary. And this was a, a thing that ended up on the news, like regularly one of the summers that I was in high school. And um, so that was something that, that came up for me. And um, the, for example, with Peter and his, his crisis of faith and his disillusionment. And I think at some point, I think it's actually in the um, Across the Barricades episode, Sister Michael throws some shade at Peter for um, dating a hairdresser and then the hairdresser left or something like that. Um, yeah, he runs off with is. a woman and then she leaves him and then he sort of decides because she leaves him to stay a priest. Yeah. Y yes, exactly. And so I, so these sort of events that are, that, that crop up, um, I'm, I don't know if they are deliberately touching on some of the kind of flashpoints for cultural Catholicism in the 90s or not. Um, and if they are, I, um, I, I might be interested in doing a deep dive um, <laughs> into those and thinking through sort of what the implications of that might be. But I realize that's probably outside of the parameters for what we're gonna do today, because I know we're already running a little bit long. Um, but I think that I, I think that on the whole, um, the religion is, yeah, is, is ultimately is something that is, that is ever present, but not necessarily consistently foregrounded, if that makes any sense. No, that makes sense to me. Um, I'll do one last question and then we can go on to our passing on, which is ladies, why all the cursing in this show? It's, I, I know it's the one thing that really restrains me from just emphatically recommending this show to everyone I know because I find it incredibly amusing, but I know the cursing really gets a lot of people. And I, uh, it got um, a fellow panelist who started to watch it was like, nope, nope, I'm out. So does the cursing feel realistic to you ladies or is it gratuitous? Uh, two things. One, I already talked about sort of Michelle being into American pop culture and Tarantino and all those things. Um, so I think that's at play here. Um, but I mean, this is a show not originally produced in the United States and British and Irish shows uh, swear a lot more than American shows do because the stigma culturally is just different. So I don't know. I wasn't super bothered by the swearing because it, it just felt it felt Irish to me um, and, and felt of a particular um, time and place and I wasn't really bothered by the number of times these characters use the Lord's name in vain for example they see Jesus and Christ as oaths a lot um, and I guess it's a bit jarring but to me it just it it's a different category of speech I mean it's it's colloquial in a way that is not American so, um, I don't know, maybe I'm a bad Catholic for not, not being super um, offended by that, but to me it just felt like um, it's, a, it's the way people speak in a, a different place and time. 
Yeah, I would agree with you, Victoria. Obviously, I have no first-hand knowledge of it, but it the very initially I was like, oh my gosh, that's a lot of cursing. But very quickly it fell, was like, oh no, this is much more, this is a dialect, right? And not like... Yeah. And so they're using these words in the same way that I might be like, crap, dang, like they're just not they're they're not the same level of expletive as 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 an American or as like a Southern Belle that like they seem to me. Yeah, one of the I I would agree with that also. And there's another sense in which for me, particularly when the girls are um are cursing there's something that feels sort of adolescent and transgressive about it like trying to be edgy and rebellious through the use of language it's performative yes uh, that's that's an excellent way of describing it um because particularly particularly i think for uh for Aaron and for Claire, they seem to be at heart rule followers um, when when push comes to shove um, in a way that they might not openly flout rules or regulations in the way that, that a character like Michelle might, but language is one way of doing so with which they feel comparatively comfortable. And so it's their own sort of yeah, it, it's their own sort of boundary testing um, in a way that that feels familiar to me. Um, so it it was not a, a point. It was not a point an aspect of the show that that was that would dissuade me from watching it again, for example. All right, ladies. Do we have anything else you want to add on these shows, or do we want to move, or do we want to move on to our, our uh, recommendations and passing on? I'm fine with moving on. All right. Well, Sarah, why don't you go first? All right. For passing on today, I have a, a TV show recommendation for you. It is called "The Kids Are All Right." It only ran for one season, um, but it is available. I think um on amazon prime video i think it's also available through hulu it is a tv show about a catholic family living in california during the 1970s and if you happen to be interested in cultural representations of catholicism and what that might look like um in an american setting I, there are a lot of things that that show does really well i think without devolving into parody um and the the mother it's about a family that has uh, several boys who are all growing up in uh in the 1970s and the matriarch of that family is one of my favorite characters and i think is worth uh checking out yeah she's she's awesome um i second that and i i believe i have recommended uh that show in a, in a previous episode so uh two two cfe thumbs way up for the kids are all right uh my recommendation is something that we haven't really touched on in this episode um 
and I wish I had more time to talk about, which is its music. Um, it is dominated by the music of the Cranberries, uh, and that's what I'm going to recommend, their first album. Uh, everybody else is doing it, so why can't we? Um, if you've heard Cranberries songs, you've probably heard at least two songs from this record, uh, Dreams and Linger. Um, they are sort of quintessential Irish pop music. Dolores O'Riordan, the lead singer who uh, died last year, has a very distinctive Irish voice. Um, so if you haven't, I would recommend checking that out. Uh, came out in 1994, the album Everybody Else is Doing It, so why can't we buy the Cranberries? Well, I have to admit, Victoria, I have very distinct memories of that album because my, my older brother bought it and just listened to nothing else for an entire summer. And so I, I have very distinct memories of that album, hearing it coming through the wall. Oh, me too. I actually, I have a brother who's 15 years older than me, and I got in trouble for taking his Cranberries cassette tape to show and tell in the second grade, uh, which would have been how old I was in 1994. So uh, yeah, sorry, Sean, for swiping that cassette tape. I hope I gave it back to you after I was the coolest second grader ever. My recommendation is going to be the show Fleabag. Um, it's a co-production for with BBC and Amazon, so it streams on Amazon. And it's a show about kind of a free-spirited uh, and kind of sexually free woman living in London, uh, essentially kind of the character of Michelle a little bit. She There's a lot of uh, fourth wall breaking, very, very interesting and again, not necessarily not necessarily similar humor, but in the way they talk, some of the cursing, it just it has that slightly more, that much more kind of British feel to it than a traditional American comedy would have. And I I really enjoyed it. So and then also I'm going to sneak this one in King of the Hill as well. It this kind of does make me think of King of the Hill and that some of those very deep cuts. So I'll I'll just throw that that one out there as well in case nobody's heard of of that show. So. Well, all right. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendation for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Sarah Thomas and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, I'm Sarah Kluster. Tune in in about two weeks when we'll discuss our Halloween crossover episode, The Village. Until then, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. <laughs>